Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Spider-Man No Way Home star Jacob Batalon about new sci-fi comedy drama Reginald the Vampire, Moabudu, chief executive of Nigerian media giant Ebony Life and exec producer of its new Netflix original Blood Sisters, discusses her mission of elevating African content. And Discovery UK Vice President of Lifestyle and Entertainment Commissioning Charlotte Reed explains why caper crime might be the next twist in the true crime genre. Reginald the Vampire is a comedy drama for US cable net sci-fi featuring Spider-Man No Way Home star Jacob Batalon as a newly turned bloodsucker struggling to fit into a world of beautiful self-obsessed demons. Based on Johnny B. Truant's Fat Vampire novels, the 10-part series is produced by Thunderbird Entertainment-owned Great Pacific Media alongside Modern Story, December Films and Cineflix Studios with the latter's distribution arm handling sales. Amazon and Hulu have already snapped up certain rights and Batalon was at MIPTV in Cannes last month together with exec producer Todd Berger and Cineflix Senior Vice President of Scripted Brett Burlock to talk about the show. They spoke to Michael Pickard. Here's Jacob Batalon. Hey, it's Jacob Batalon here. Um, our show called Reginald the Vampire, it's based on a series of books called Fat Vampire and it's a sci-fi dramedy you know, has all the sort of makings of a really amazing show, and not, I'm not trying to be biased or anything because I'm Reginald. Um, but basically, it's just about this normal guy who becomes a vampire and who still has to deal with very human things, um, and also dealing with the vampire community who's very vain and who only likes beautiful, fit people and not normal, regular, thoughtful, amazing people. So, yeah. Good. All those tropes, all those bad things. He's the hero. He wins. He gets the girl in the end. But also a lot of bad things happen to him. So we'll see what happens. Great. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that you're one of, I guess, the biggest stars in the world at the moment on oh. the back of Spider-Man films. <laughs> um, I mean, just what, what's the last year or so been like for you as, as that, you know, you filmed during the pandemic, I yeah. imagine, and, and then releasing the film and, and obviously yeah. the reaction you've had? Oh, it was crazy. You know, I, I think that Spider-Man, you know, was obviously we were really lucky to have been working in a time where there wasn't even a vaccine available yet. Um, so, you know, to do all those things with COVID especially and really being safe and, and making sure that, um, you know, we were able to work and we were just very lucky to have done so. Um, you know, in my life, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, been, it's been nice. It's been really fun. Uh, I feel like I don't really focus too much on fame in the way of I'm not really looking for it. Um, you know, I, I'm really thankful for the success, and it's really put me in the position to really be here for Reginald the Vampire. So, um, you know, I'm very thankful for it, and the last year of my life has been absolutely crazy, especially doing the show, because the show has been taking the majority of the last, you know, last five months of my life, and, you know, I've put a lot of myself into it, you know, my blood, sweat, and tears, all, by the way, real, and also fake blood, which gets everywhere. Awful, <laughs> awful idea. But... um. It's, it's been great. It's been really, really amazing for sure. Great. I mean, I can't imagine you'd have been short of kind of offers, you know, once Spider-Man and yeah. your Marvel commitments kind of paused or, or came to an end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what were you kind of maybe looking for in terms of another film or, or a TV yeah. series? Uh, truly, I was looking for things that just uh, intrigued me, uh, things that I, I found to be different and not something that's a reiteration of anything. Yeah. And I found that Reginald the Vampire specifically was just something that I've never read before, something that I've never ever conceived of before. So um, that really, that really, really, really spoke to me on a on a great level. Um, 
you know, compared to other movies that I feel like I've sort of done versions of already. So, um, you know, Resident the Vampire, again, just a very unique story that I love to be a part of. Great. So. And and so was it the, the kind of the, the source material, the original novels that you read, or was it a script? What was yeah. it that kind of jumped out at you? From uh, yeah, page? so uh, we... My agent had given me the first two episodes uh, that Harley Payton had ri- uh, had written, and it was it was such a funny, relatable sort of uh, story that we we were really interested in the book. My girlfriend and I, so we we read the first book of the series, which is six, by the way. Johnny's a hell of a writer, um, and it was just again very relatable. You know, like he he's a very he's a very very much an everyday person. Um, he's not like the like the romance novel suggests. He's not like the sort of like prototypical leading man that Hollywood tries to portray. You know, he's just a very much everyday person. And I think that we need to really embrace the idea that not everyone has to look a certain way to be the hero of the story. Mm-hmm, yeah. Definitely. And so, I mean, tell us about Reginald because at the start, obviously, he, he's not a vampire. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, um, yeah. you know, he's kind of learning to deal with a lot of stuff quite yeah, quickly. Absolutely, yeah. Again, you know, he's just a very... Uh, normal person in a way you know he uh besides being a very thoughtful and 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 neurotic person he he's dealt with uh he's dealt with being a person who's not seen as societally beautiful his whole life so he's dealt with the sort of uh judgments that come with that um you know unrequited love and and bullies who, who don't really understand him um but he he doesn't let that deter him he doesn't let those sort of things put him down he just accepts his fate um, and you know, becoming a vampire sort of gave him gave him a new life through death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, obviously, he does learn a lot of things very quickly, and he takes them in really well. And he has surprising superpowers of his own. So, gotta watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got a, I guess, a lot to deal with. You know, his personal life, his his job. Yeah. I mean, how does he kind of manage all these new things as well as coming to terms with his his fate? I guess as a vampire. I think he doesn't manage them well at all. I think <laughs> I think the entire show is an exploration of how he doesn't do that well, not even a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and even when he does sort of get a grip on it, he immediately fumbles the bag. So I think that like it's a very human sort of thing to do. You know, I think just in terms of. I related a lot to success in in a way of, you know, you have this amazing thing, uh, but you you can easily lose yourself in your humanity in it. So, you know, it's just sort of like really finding yourself. And I think Reginald does a really good job of redemption in that way. Mm-hmm. So. And then just in terms of, um, I guess, the, the tone of the show, obviously it's comedy, yeah. it's drama, coming yeah. of age, yeah. um, buddy comedy, rom-com sure. as well. I yeah, mean, I, there's a lot going on. How do you feel yeah. the show manages that tone? Uh, it, we do really well with it. You know, I, I think it's hard to sort of play every level on a very good, on a very good way, in, in a very good way, because, you know, you, you could play really heavily into one thing and not really read another way. And I think because our cast is so good and because the writing is so good, we were really able to really put it in a perfect balance of, of romance and comedy and, and drama and, and all these things that, that make a show great. Um, and, and that's why I feel like it has a bit of everything for everyone, and that's a really important thing for us. We want everyone to enjoy the show because we made it for everyone. Mm-hmm, definitely. And, and as an actor, I guess, when you come to a new role, do you have a, a kind of way you like to prepare, or how did you prepare to take on this role? Honestly, it was a lot of crying. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of, a lot of like self-talk in the mirror before going to work every single day. Um, but I think practically it was just uh, really understanding... Um, where I am and where, and where we're at creatively with the story and, and my vision of Reginald and, and our shared vision of what the show wants to be. 
um, of what we want the show to be. Um, and uh, it was just really trusting each other. You know, tr- the process of like understanding the story is good and understanding performances are good. And, and, and the crew's there to help us really get through like the actual practical filming of things. It was just, it, it was more just like being open and, and ready for anything every single day is how I sort of prepared for it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't suppose you can compare it to a, a Marvel film, but what was it just like on set and, and kind of the challenges that you had as the character to play every yeah. day? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, with with movies, you, we don't. There's a lot of waiting involved. <laughs> Typically, you know, we we shoot we, we shoot maybe like a page and a half, two pages max. Uh, but with TV, you we're, we went like ten, eleven pages every single day of dialogue. Um, and, and I think the main difference for me, obviously, being in every single day, I got to work with everyone, and everyone just had like a different flavor, and it was it was amazing to work with. But the preparedness again for me to just come in and like spew monologue after monologue that was a whole like shakespearean thing for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah and and i guess yeah being the lead the number one on the call sheet yeah. does that did that come with a sense of responsibility or, or how did you want to to approach that role yeah. that you had in the cast uh it was it was very very uh i learned a lot from people who are really successful and the main thing that i took away from that is the most successful people are, are like the the most relatable and helpful and easy to work with and, and you know not difficult type of people. Um, and I really wanted to really create a culture where people didn't feel I didn't want people to feel not safe. I didn't want people to feel like I I hated them or judged them or or anything like that. I wanted them to feel accepted and and heard and understood and. Um, I just, I just really wanted to make sure that people felt that for me, mm-hmm. for sure. Great, and and I guess behind the scenes, you're also a, a co-executive producer. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that role, maybe why you wanted to to have a bit more say behind the scenes and and how that you applied that. I think you know from the beginning, I, I feel like Harley and Jeremiah and Todd and Lindsay, I feel like they all very much believed in me into in the sense of, in the sense of. Uh, they really trusted my opinion and my vision, and that made me feel really confident. And, and I feel like they really needed that to make the show what it is. And so um, it was really interesting to play both sides. You know, it was, uh, you learn a lot about the business aspect. You learn a lot about the show running of it all. Um, and, you know, as actors, we don't really think about that stuff. So it, it was like a whole new world of insight. And, and in turn, it, it really taught me a lot about being an actor as well. So. I was very enlightening, for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how how do you you know compare that? Yeah, the behind the scenes with the movies. You said there's obviously a lot of waiting, but yeah. movies take years to make, whereas this yeah. obviously is a, a lot quicker. So, yeah. how did you kind of apply that and adapt? I guess yeah. to a much faster environment. Well, I, I think that it, that's basically time is money, right? Like mm-hmm. the the reason why it takes so much time is because they got money to spare. Um, I, and I think with with like smaller budget things, you we're able to sort of focus more on performance as opposed to leaning on to other things that hide performance, right? So um, I think w- with us, we were just really making sure that we were performing well, and, and we the storytelling came across really well, and the writing really spoke for itself. So um, I think that's the, the main difference, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Were there any major challenges? Obviously, you're filming while we're still in a, a pandemic yeah. of sorts. I yeah. mean, how did that affect things, or were yeah. there other challenges you had? I think that's, that was probably the main the main challenge, for sure. Mm-hmm. It was making sure that everyone was safe and making sure that we were able to go. And we had a few setbacks here and there, but we were able to thankfully finish it. Um, 
And uh, we were just really grateful to have the time to like actually work in a time where not a lot of people can. Mm-hmm. So um, it was definitely the COVID thing. Um, and, you know, it does it does affect a lot of things, but we were able to make the best of it because that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, other than that, it was it was an amazing time for sure. Right. And, and just in terms of the world of the show, I mean, uh, I guess Maurice and, and Sarah are sort of two key characters. Can you just mm-hmm. tell us a bit about them and, and sort of the other characters that we're going to encounter in the show. Yeah, uh, Maurice is the sort of, he's my sire, right? He turns me into a vampire and he be, he reluctantly becomes my mentor. Uh, and, you know, I, I think as, as all like, you know, random friendships happen, you sort of like start off kind of like distant. Mm-hmm. But obviously as the show goes on, we, 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 start, we have a bond that's like inseparable. Um, you know, and Sarah is, he starts, she starts out as, Reginald's uh, co-worker, you know, and, and I feel like there's a lot of unrequited love there. Um, that's a very interesting storyline. On his part. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> like, absolutely. Um, and it just, it becomes a very amazing, sweet romance. Um, and, you know, Reginald fumbles the bag quite a bit with that. <laughs> um, uh, then there's uh, Claire, uh, you know, he plays her sort of surrogate big brother, I'd say. She doesn't really have anyone to really look after her, so he's sort of there for her. Um, there's Ashley. They are like the the most conspiracy theorist driven people ever. Um, they're really funny, by the way. Um, and then we got Todd, his sort of boss bully, uh, who becomes his friend in a way. That's that's a big deal. Um, we got the villain, uh, Angela, big bad, scary. She's powerful. Uh, and she can do whatever she wants because she is the big bad. So a lot of really crazy dynamics uh, going on in the show for sure. Like everyone has like an amazing take on their role. And it, without them, I don't think the show would be the same. Yeah. And, and just then in terms of the structure and how we follow Reginald through the series, is yeah. it kind of a story of the week kind of thing? Or is there one big arc that he goes on? Yeah, it's it's one it's one singular storyline for sure. Um, and, and I think that it's such a good... Um, story that I feel like people are going to be so hooked. Like, it's just, you, we always leave it on a cliffhanger, and I think that's important because, you know, always leave them wanting more. Um, uh, and, yeah, it's, it's just, like, one great story to follow for sure. Yeah, and how would you say, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in particular, but yeah. TV vampires, film vampires, they're quite uh, a popular <laughs> sort of uh, trend. I mean, how would you say Reginald kind of subverts that or offers something different to that kind of genre? Well, I, I think the, the most, the more obvious thing Wow. The more obvious thing is that uh, he doesn't look like them, mm-hmm. right? Reginald is the sort of like anti-version of what that is, and he sort of turns the tropes on its head. And I, I think that's important because with our show, we sort of like play the idea that vampires only care about like vain, vapid things, right? Um, and Reginald is, is, is the complete opposite. He's very thoughtful, and, and he's insightful, and, and he's very much a deep person as opposed to just like a beautiful being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what people will love the most about the show is that no one is taking themselves too seriously in our show. Like, there's big bad vampires for sure, but we're not like brooding in every scene. <laughs> <laughs> and and I guess just more generally, I mean, what do you make of TV at the moment? You know, there's so many yeah. platforms, so many yeah. shows, so many dramas. How yeah. do you feel Reginald maybe fits into that you know huge landscape, and, and why will people come to it? I think uh, Todd Berger uh, was talking about this earlier in an interview that we did where. You know, it's a very quirky dramedy, right? A quirky sci-fi dramedy. So that's a very niche thing to be a part of, and we we like the idea that we're not we're not like another iteration of a show that's already out there. We love that we're very unique, 
Um, and, and in a way, um, we may not fit in with the with those type of with those type of things for sure. But we love that we don't. You know, I love that we're like we're all, we're our own thing, mm-hmm. and we really we really bank on the fact that people will enjoy that too. Um, but you know, in terms of like all the shows and TV and stuff, I, I as an actor, I love the idea that it affords everyone an opportunity to really act and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it's not like it's a dying art or anything, but I, I just love, again, the idea that everyone has an opportunity to work. So yeah, definitely, yeah. with your kind of producer credits now, are you is that something you're looking to do more in the future, as well as acting, or you know, yeah, for of? sure. I, I feel like um, it. I feel like it, it's absolutely uh, opened some doors for me in the sense of uh, more opportunity business wise, um, and that's something. That's something in my career that I feel like I want to work on more. I feel like I've spent a lot of time being an actor. And um, not that I love being the center of attention. I love it to death. Um, and I would still want to be an actor. Um, I'm way more open to business opportunities as well now. So I think that's a really big thing for me. And it's afforded me the opportunities to even see them. So it's good. Yeah, great. Sure. And, and why do you think, you know, for international audiences, why is Reginald something that's going to appeal, not just, I guess, in North America or the UK? Yeah. Why is it going to go global, do you think? Uh, because, um, again, like, it, it's like there's nothing really like it out there. And, and I, I, I feel like I've been around the world and I think that it's just something that no one has ever really seen. And I know for a fact that people will love it. Like, I, I, I don't want to bank my entire career on it, but it literally, it's, it's just such a great show that I know that people will find it funny and find it relatable and, and, and will, will know the storylines are interesting and find the characters to be so dynamic. It's just... It's just something that we've never seen before, and I know that people will love it. Yeah, and, and is this, I guess, designed as a returning series, or, or what's next for you? Yeah, you know? it's definitely designed that way. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be that way. Um, I think that we're we're hoping for that. We're really confident that it'll happen. Um, I, I'm not really, again, I'm not really basing my entire career off the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm obviously open to a lot of opportunities. I've read a lot of scripts where it's all very interesting, mm-hmm. um, but it it just really needs to be something that speaks to me. Like, yeah. Yeah. Is sure. there is there anything you'd like to do, a genre or a character? Uh, you know, not particularly. I, I'll do anything that is just wild and zany. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Batalon speaking with Michael Pickard. Now over to Channel 21 international editor Nico Franks to introduce our next interview. Blood Sisters is described as an authentic African story that will introduce Netflix's global viewership to a host of talent from Nigeria with a drama featuring murder, love, betrayal and tested friendships. It comes as part of the multi-title partnership between Netflix and Mo Abudu through her media conglomerate Ebony Life, which will see the addition of multiple Nigerian series and movies to the service. Ebony Life believes in elevating Africa's media image by showcasing an inspired, progressive and uplifted view of the continent and creating powerful content that tells African stories as well as deepening global storytelling around the black experience. I spoke to its CEO Mo Abadou about this mission and Blood Sisters, which is set against the bustling backdrop of Lagos and follows two best friends bound by a dangerous secret who are forced to go on the run after a wealthy groom disappears during his engagement party. So we're speaking, yeah, shortly after Blood Sisters has premiered on Netflix. Yes. Um, and that comes as part of the multi-title partnership that you have with the streamer. So tell me about why Blood Sisters has kind of arrived at this point in that partnership. Well, we signed the partnership with Netflix, as you probably know, when it was announced in 2020. And um, it included a number of original 
um, features and series. And I think, of course, as you know, I mean, next they will decide on what they think needs to hit the market at what time. Um, and they reached out to us uh, probably a couple of years ago and said, listen, send us some really great story ideas that could become um, either a feature or a limited series. And as with all things, because Ebony Life really believes in, you know, developing um, story ideas that we share with partners around the world, we always have things that we, we always have things that have been developed with, you know, the, you know, the, the, the series Bible and the character descriptors and sometimes even pilot episodes. Um, and one of them was Blood Sisters and they just loved it. And um, we went to bed, you know, on that project, basically sort of taking it from what we had into what premiered. Um, you know, the response has been has been, has been overwhelming. But I, to, to go back to what you said in terms of why now, I think why now? Because Netflix more than I don't want to say more than the other other streamers, but Netflix really do understand that they need to speak to a global audience and that storytelling, great storytelling can come from anywhere in the world. And that is why they are investing in places like Nigeria and South Africa, because they know that those stories are there. You know, the talent is there and um, the creators are there, um, you know, and with this sort of project that we've done, Blood Sisters, you can see um, the production values are there. This story could be made, could have been made absolutely anywhere. Anyone can understand it. I mean, sometimes stories are done, local stories are done for a local audience, and sometimes local stories can be done for a global audience. And we strongly believe that Blood Sister falls into that category of a local story done for a global audience, which I think is where Netflix wants to be. They want to obviously build the Nigerian market because the Nigerian market is a very important market. I mean, there are 200 million people in this country. It's not a market to be ignored by any business, to be honest. Anyone in any line of work cannot afford to ignore Nigeria. And they obviously understand and see that Nigeria is a very important market. So it's about growing the home market. And it's about taking our content that is made in Nigeria to a global audience because there's a whole new generation of people watching content now. They're not, you know, they're not biased about it coming from, or if I'm living in London, the story has to be told from London or it has to be about Londoners. People really just don't care. They just want really great stories. And I think that's what Blood Sisters has been able to achieve um, with, with what we've done. Yeah. Have you got one eye on the Nigerian reaction and then one eye on the international reaction as well? Well, it's it's a little bit difficult to I haven't done the analysis and it's only been one day, but I'm sure my team will share analysis with me soon. And Netflix always share feedback with us. I mean, of course, things on Instagram, I, I don't know where they're coming from. But this morning I did say I, someone did say to me, oh, my God, I'm so happy that I can watch this in Italian. You know, I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know, um, and there have been comments in French and, and, and other languages. So we can assume that different people from different parts of the world are watching. But have I done the analysis on day one? No, I haven't done the analysis. Um, but there's a lot of feedback. A lot of the stuff on Twitter is coming very much from a Nigerian audience, and they are just absolutely loving it. And we're so happy that they're so happy because, you know, Twitter can be a very toxic environment. Um, you know, people just say all sorts of things. And But, you know, it's been, you know, I, I, we have the only comment we found that I would say is, um, not even negative, but it's like, why are they only four episodes? Why is it a limited series? You know, so that's the only thing that we've picked up on that. Okay, people are saying, oh, they would rather there was more. Um, you know, so so who knows? Maybe unlimited, maybe limited becomes unlimited at some point. And you mentioned there, so making a local show with global appeal. And when we interview execs about 
about making that kind of show, the reoccurring thing that seems to come up is focusing on the human stories. So do you feel like Blood Sisters does that? It does do that. You see, Blood Sisters is dealing with so many themes. It's dealing with themes of domestic abuse. Then you've, you've got issues of friendship. You know, what will you do for your best friend? You're dealing with the social economic divide, the rich to the poor. You know, you're dealing with peer pressure. You're dealing with family pressure. You're dealing with, am I marrying the right person? Should I go ahead and marry this person? You know, and what is important, I think, globally is for the world to also understand that we as Africans and Nigerians have remained very silent in our storytelling for a long time. And it's really important that the world understands that we need to be seen, we need to be heard. Yes, Black lives matter, African lives matter, African stories matter. And I think we're truly at a point whereby we're ready to start sharing the best of African content creation with the world. And I think Blood Sisters has set itself apart in trying to do that. And Netflix also, it's a Netflix original. And, you know, for it to be a Netflix original, it, it means it needs to have a certain standard. And I believe we've achieved that with, with Blood Sisters. And it feels like a kind of truly kind of Hollywood and Nollywood coming together in this case. What do you think the two can learn from one another? Well, first up, I really don't like the term Nollywood. I believe a Canadian journalist came here 20-something years ago and decided to coin the Nollywood phrase. I mean, it's something that has stuck with us. And yes, it's a title that we need to own. Um, but, you know, I much prefer to say Nigerian filmmaking, you know, Nigerian, a Nigerian, this is a Nigerian series. Um, but in terms of what does Hollywood think of African filmmaking, I think that if any of them take the time to watch Blood Sisters, they will appreciate the storytelling. They will appreciate the authenticity that comes along with the story. Because one thing that I think we need to do that we must always be conscious of is make sure that it is truly authentic. As much as you want it to be global, never ever fall away from trying to be traditional where tradition must be set. And I think that's what we've done with this story. Um, there's a wedding involved in this, in this series. We kept it very traditional. Um, we kept the um, the 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 nuances and and the, and the rituals that happen in our weddings. We've kept them within this wedding because we can't get away from the fact that that is who we are, and the world needs to understand who we are. But also, the story is understandable enough for you to be able to come along with it, despite the fact that there are rituals within this storytelling that are specific to Nigeria. Um, and I think that's what. Hollywood needs to appreciate is that, you know, how many times is Hollywood going to keep telling the same story? I mean, come on, guys, you know, we need to sort of, you know, the world is a massive, is, is a massive place, you know, there are over a billion people in Africa with so many different languages and backdrops. And Lagos is just one of those. And what you see in this series is you see Lagos, you see the rich Lagos, you see the poor Lagos. And I think Hollywood should embrace that and see that it's, things aren't just made you know, movies aren't just made on the streets of New York or the streets of L.A. Movies can be made on the streets of Lagos and it can be just as entertaining, which is what we've been able to achieve with Blood Sisters. Yeah. I mean, I was born and bred in the UK, so I have I pretty much have a, you know, a pretty wide eye when it comes to content. And I think, you, you know, I can watch an American series and I can say it's great and I can watch this and I can be objective enough to myself as the producer and say, this is really, really the best work we've done so far at Ebony Life, you know, um, and we're very proud of it. Yeah. 
And I think Hollywood, to go back to what you said, Nico, Hollywood needs to embrace and blood sisters and 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 appreciate the art um, and the culture. Yeah. And also in the pipeline, so there's an adaptation of Death and the King's Horseman. So tell me a bit about that project. Well, I had acquired the rights to um, Death and the King's Horseman from Professor Wally Shoyinka many, many, many years ago. Um, because it's, again, it's, it's one of those stories that speaks to our tradition. It's the story about um, a tradition in a particular part of Nigeria, um, in Oyo State, and it's based on true life events set in around 1943 during the height of the Second World War. And when a king dies, the king's horseman has to die along with him. And in this particular instance, the horseman on the day that he's meant to die meets a beautiful woman and decides that before he dies, he would like to marry her. And as with all things, there are consequences. And, you know, they don't want to deny him his last worldly, you know, earthly pleasures. So he does go ahead and marry this, this girl. But then there's so many other sequent, you know, consequences that happen thereafter. And that's what Death and the King's Horseman unpacks. Um, so, um, yes, it's, it's the, the project is made um, and we look forward to sharing it with the world. Um, very, very soon. And you mentioned how the UK TV industry still has a lot of work to do in terms of of representation um, and the lack of programming being made by and for black audiences. Did you kind of receive any kind of response from that or kind of how are you seeing the UK industry evolve? Well, there, there are two things that I think are happening in the UK. On the, on the one hand, um, I think UK broadcasters aren't necessarily given black um, producers the opportunities they need. Um, but I also think that black producers also need to be more forceful um, with regards to ensuring that they are ready to take up opportunities um, when they come. Um, we can't afford to be frustrated or resentful. We just have to we just have to basically deal with the fact that we are a part of the UK film and TV industry and keep pushing projects until they get to a point of whereby they are greenlit. So my approach pretty much is to do that. Um, we've set up a, an office in London to ensure that we can do this. Um, and we have stories that um, have been developed into, um, you know, the, the packages that broadcasters like to receive. Um, and for us, our focus will always be the Black experience. And we are sharing some of those ideas with broadcasters. And I think some of the responses are beginning to, to become more positive. Um, but even prior to all of this, we had already signed a deal as Ebony Life with um, BBC Studios um, on a project called Reclaim, which again goes back to the 18th, um, sometime in the 1800s when the British came to Nigeria, went to Benin City and looted all our wonderful artifacts and took them back to various museums around the world. And even till tomorrow, when you ask for these things back, you're being told a number of reasons as to why you can't have them back, despite the fact that they were looted from us. So in this um, fictionalized series, it's about how a, you know, a team of you know, millennials who, or, who are all black decide to take the law into their own hands and go and take back what rightfully belongs to them. Maybe not in a rightfully way, but it definitely it's a heist. It's very entertaining, it's lovely, and we're very happy to be working with BBC Studios on that project. So again, I think it's about positioning and it's about you know, making sure that 
you keep knocking on the broadcasters' doors. I mean, for all the deals we've signed, um, for everyone that's been signed, probably three or four have been passed on. So we can't afford to, um, as black producers, be frustrated with the process. We just have to keep knocking. But I do also believe that there aren't enough black gatekeepers or there aren't enough gatekeepers that understand the black experience period. So when they do even get the right stories at times, nothing happens simply because they are not even understanding it. And therefore that needs to change in the UK. That needs to change. There needs to be people in charge that are gatekeepers that understand the types of stories that could originate from Africa or from black producers. Um, and, and that has to be dealt with. And I think by the, you know, we keep, need to keep talking about it. We need to keep positioning um, about it. And then ultimately, I think at some point something will give. And again, when projects do well, it encourages those even white gatekeepers say, well, that project did well. Let's, you know, so we also, we have a responsibility as well to ensure that we do good work so that those gates can be opened um, and remain open. I think we, we need to recognize that racism does exist, that racism is real and discrimination is real in every society. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a battle. We are going to just have, we're going to have to keep dealing with it. It's, you know, there's no way to sugarcoat the fact that it doesn't exist. Um, you know, there's gender racism, there's color racism, there's all kinds of racism that people are dealing with. And, you know, the fact is that we can't not deal with it, but we have to just keep finding ways to deal with it. I mean, I can't say much more than that. I mean, myself as a black woman, I know that as an African black woman, I know that I face three levels of, of discrimination. Number one, I'm a woman. That in itself is, I'm discriminated against on, on those grounds. Number two, I am a black woman. I am discriminated against on those grounds. Number three, I am an African woman. Again, a third level of discrimination that I'm having to deal with. So I know that I have to sometimes work twice, three, four, five times as hard as a white woman, um, as a black woman, or even just as a person. I just have to always work harder because if not, I just don't get those opportunities. But I think what's important is that once you do have the opportunity, once you do do great work, then things begin to change. That's when the change, that tipping point, that's when it begins to happen. So it is frustrating. It is unfair. It is unfair. But what is the alternative? You know, what is the alternative? The alternative is do nothing. The alternative is just do nothing. Yeah. And so, yeah, the potential of reclaim is obviously massive in light of those comments. So, yeah. What, in the development of that project, what are the kind of the, have there been any kind of touch points in terms of previous films or TV series? Because it does feel like a show that explores, you know, the issues of colonialism, race and, and cultural ownership. It is, it you know, it shouldn't be, but it, it, it feels like it's been a long time coming. Yes, it is. But it's a very young show as well, because we're dealing with millennials of today. In terms of what show can I compare it to, nothing comes to mind easily because I think it is quite original to the fact that nothing like that has been done. So it is, it's, it's, it's very original in that, in that regard. Um, you know, but we are still in development with, with BBC Studios. And, you know, I guess when it's time for us to move from development into production, then another announcement will be made. Yeah. In terms of how the Nigerian industry is, is evolving, can you tell me, tell me a bit about that? The Nigerian film and TV industry has grown in leaps and bounds. 
I would say more so in the last four or five years, but this didn't exist. Okay. Literally, we had no cinemas 10 years ago. And 10 years later, we now have XYZ number of cinemas. Ebony Life also has its own cinemas. We have five cinema screens in Lagos. And I can tell you that, you know, it's servicing, um, I would say a more luxurious end of the market because we decided to go more top end, you know, sort of more of an everyman style. So you get your blankets and your, you can press your core button to get service, you know. So we decided to go more top end, but you know, there, there are a number of cinemas that are just like, get the popcorn at the concession stand and go in and watch. But the most important thing is that we do now have cinemas in Nigeria. So a lot of local filmmakers are making local films for local audiences that they're enjoying in local languages. And it's fine. Some of those projects are local for local. But at the same time, companies like Ebony Life have made films that have gone to the box office in Nigeria that also, I would say that they're local for local, but there is some local for global-ness in them. I mean, we've had probably three, three of our projects have been the highest grossing at the Nigerian box office until last year, when another film came out and topped our record and we had, we've been holding on to that record for the last five years or so. So it was about time. We thought we were going to break our own record. Um, but then at that point, we kind of then pivoted into more, you know, partnerships with the streamers. Um, so we haven't had a cinema release um, in, 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 in a couple of years. And then COVID struck. And of course, things went a little bit quiet globally for the cinema industry. But it's picked up. It's picked up in the last few months, to be honest. It really has picked up really well. We've seen the numbers improving even at our cinema, but even generally numbers reported in Nigeria are very, are very good. So on the other hand, you've then got the streamers like Netflix and Amazon that are making their way into Nigeria. And they are wanting to build the local market here. Of course, Netflix, you know, trailblazed that and they 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 have a first mover advantage. So they're definitely are keeping companies like Ebony Life busy. But again, I want to say that Ebony Life is probably slightly um, different to other production companies in that we've, you know, we spread our tentacles a little bit more widely into the world. Um, as you know, we have partnerships with um, Sony Pictures Television on, a, on, on three global projects, um, AMC on a sci-fi um, project, um, you know, um, Will, Will Packer, on the Hushed Puppy story, which is a in partnership with, with Universal, it's a feature. Um, Will Smith's company, Westbrook, we have three projects with them. You know, um, Lionsgate and Stars, where we have a project called Queen in Zynga that goes back to the 17th century, sort of telling the life and times of this incredible queen that lived then. You know, so we've, you know, we, we have been, Ebony Life has been particularly very, very busy in, in, in that global space. But not forgetting that we our local market is also important for us. But we're at a point now whereby we're making local for global. That must also fit into um, the local storytelling. So, 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 so the market has grown tremendously in Nigeria um, for film, for television, for series. Um, and even a lot of young content makers are doing things on YouTube. And, you know, YouTube basically you can monetize any content provider can monetize on YouTube. So a lot of our your creatives, a lot of our up and comings are doing things on, on, on YouTube. Even my daughter that's a producer with Ebony Life, she has a series that she put on YouTube called MMM. She got over a million views and she was being paid handsomely for that. 
you know, so she, amongst many other young um, producers, are just doing that. So everybody's just kind of finding their space and doing really interesting things. And some are doing TikTok and some are doing Instagram. And we've, we've got influencers here that have got 10, 20 million followers on Instagram. I mean, you know, that doesn't just happen by sitting around and doing nothing, you know. So, um, you know, the market is really changing and, and the market has grown and the opportunities are immense. And, you know, um, I think it can only get better than where we are today. And if I take it back to Blood Sisters, by the time the world engages with Blood Sisters, what it does is it opens us up to many, many more opportunities. More people are going to come knocking and saying, wow, if this is not the new Nollywood as we now know it, we want to be a part of this. And I think that's really a strong message. Um, it's one of the strong messages in what um, is being delivered in Blood Sisters today. And just finally, what would you say is the kind of dominant way of viewing in Nigeria? Is it on mobile or is it slightly more traditional pre-TV, pay TV? And obviously there's so many different models now with subscriptions and ad support, yeah. VOD. Well, I, I am told that, you know, young people tell me they stream now. I think personally, I don't know where linear TV is going. I, I don't know how much longer linear TV is going to be around for, but I guess some people only have still have access to linear, but this millenn millennial generation are all streaming. They're all streaming at whatever the cost is because they just want to be connected to the world. They just want to be connected. So they are just out there consuming and they never seem to get tired of consuming whatever it be it a K-drama today, an American series tomorrow, Blood Sisters the next day, they are YouTube the next day. They, it's all really now about data, data, data. So the telcos obviously are, are, make, are, are minting a fortune, aren't they? Because we can't do any of this without data. Yeah. Moa Boudou, speaking with Nico Franks. Discovery UK is behind returning factual true crime shows like Faking It and Deadliest Kids, plus limited series like Children of the Cult and Johnny vs. Amber, drawing on a steady pipeline also of titles from US sibling ID and developing IP for global streamer Discovery+. Plus. Discovery UK Vice President of Lifestyle and Entertainment Commissioning Charlotte Reed spoke to Clive Whittingham about how she sees true crime evolving, why caper crime might be the next twist in the genre, the importance of handling subjects sensitively and why the company is lining up more courtroom stories like Johnny vs Amber. So we've been making crime shows for a while now, obviously, because, you know, we, we have our ID pipeline and get a lot of stuff from the States. We've been making it for Linear for a long time on Quest Red um, and then more recently making it for Discovery Plus. And they're all sort of slightly different types of shows that work. So we make more returning formats for the Linear channels um, and then we're more likely to do kind of bigger pieces or limited series for Discovery Plus. But actually, there's quite a lot of crossover of what works on all platforms. So it's, it's a really interesting really important genre for us so at the moment we've got a couple of series so we're making a new series of uh, deadliest kids season two so we're just making that which we commissioned and actually you know i don't i don't think it was necessarily thought through but just just as the first series landed there were an awful lot of really terrible murders by parents of children so it just hit a really awful zeitgeist um on that one we do faking it, which we've been doing for years, and we've kind of evolved and grown. That's kind of an interesting one because I think what works really well about that is you can go back and visit really iconic crime stories, but you're bringing a whole different layer of analysis. 
through our three experts, you know, the body language, linguistics and forensic psychology. So actually you get a kind of double watch and it gives you a reason to go back and analyse those stories um, and discover how, you know, how perpetrators lie about the things that they've done. But it's quite important. I think we're quite motivated by looking at why you go back and do a crime story. Um, We quite often get pitched, you know, do you want to go back and look at Jamie Bulger or something like that? And I don't think you should ever do stuff just because it's a big crime story. I think there has to be a reason, whether it's new analysis or new access or exclusive access or different archive. I think there has to be a real reason for going back to look at these, obviously, because underneath it, you know, there's awful tragedy and victims and families. So that's a kind of snapshot of what we commission and across what the, the Discovery Plus stuff is slightly different. Yeah, we're much more likely to do a limited series, a three, four parter. So stuff that we've done in that ranges from children of the cult um which was a five-parter we did with mentorn um and we did that because three women came to mentorn wanting to talk about their experience of being in that cult and the abuse they suffered and they had a whole load of access to archive that they'd smuggled out of the cult so then you're just you're providing a platform for people who need to tell and are willing to tell and are brave enough to tell a really really important story something like annie the honeymoon murder was a four-part limited series And again, doing these limited series, what's brilliant about them is you can go into really forensic, granular detail about stories and cases in a way that you never could before. But again, that was motivated by the fact that it was the 10-year anniversary and the family is still really frustrated by their never really having their day in court on that case. So it gives you a reason to do it. It's not gratuitous. Yeah, how does the stuff that you do on this side of um, where your teams over here differ from the stuff that you obviously get almost in bulk from ID in the US? Because as I presume there's not a lot of point in just making the British version of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good question. So, I mean, mostly what we'll look for is a local angle or local relevance. And then if it's got an international scope, all the better. But it's got to have some sort of local relevance. That's the first thing. We quite often get pitched, you know, a, a series and it's all American cases. And you're right. Then we go, well, why would we make that? Why wouldn't ID make it? Um, so that's the first thing. So Annie is a really good example. So, you know, Swedish victim, British perpetrator happened in South Africa, you know, so very British story with international resident resonance. And on the limited series, what, um, the, like you said, there were more for Discovery Plus than than the linear channels, but for the sort of the three, four part specials that you were talking about, what what makes a topic more suitable for that than the self-contained one hours? How? What do you look for to justify sort of stretching it out across a more in-depth look? Yeah, yeah. No, again, it's a really good question. I think so. I think again, it's access is really key. Whether that's access to people who've never spoken before. So Annie, we had all the family. We had some of the perpetrators. We had the police. We had the legal counsel in our Johnny versus Amber, which I think we can count as the crime doc because it is a. Yeah. Actually a procedural yeah, yeah. piece with access to both sides of the legal counsel, both barristers on either side of that libel case, which was incredible. You had incredible archive because you had all the voice recordings and all the text messages. So I think it has to have certain things. So I'd say access, access on contributors, access to archive, and then a why now and what, what's the reason for doing it now, real relevance. So probably all three of those. How do you see the genre evolving and changing? Because I remember when I started at C21, it was very, you know, it was a US cable staple and it was self-contained one hours and, you know, wives with knives and stuff like that. And, you know, it was all sold by the end of the hour. And then it went off in that making a murderer uh, direct 
direction when Netflix came along. How, where do you think it is now? What's what's if you had to hang your hat on it? What what direction is it heading in? How is it evolving and changing now? Yeah, so it's it's so I hadn't thought about it in terms of kind of one hours versus limited series. I thought about it in terms of genres. So we think about it a lot because it feels like we've had, particularly in that kind of box set space, like there was a kind of serial killer wave. Yeah. And then there's, we're currently in a con crime wave, aren't we? And yeah. we're going, what's the next wave? Is it is it towards a sort of lighter crime where there's slightly less slightly less victim and, and tragedy underneath it? We wondered if there's a kind of caper crime wave <laughs> coming up where people have just got into a spot of bother and then come up with like ways of getting out of it. We have got one. We've got, we've got one that really bridges actually linear and S spot exactly in that space it's just like people just doing things that you just think how did you ever make that decision um, <laughs> so that that could be but you know it's, it's interesting isn't it because people can go really dark so it could go either way the ability of people to go really really dark is incredible so maybe you swing right back and you go to an even darker than serial killer place but I do think it could go to a lighter place at the same time as well I think that's the direction of travel at the moment is if I had to hang my hat on it like, yeah yeah is that sort of a is that a post lockdown thing because obviously you know everyone's a little bit fragile after being locked in our houses for two years I mean how dark do we want to go really yeah it's an interesting Um, one isn't it because you know you do have a responsibility making this don't you and you have to have a reason for making it and it's easier to make a show that's got more entertainment when there is less victim at the heart of it you know again it's looking at your purpose if you're doing Jimmy Savile and you've got contributors who want to speak that's fine but otherwise I just I think you have to have a bit of a range anyway I, th- I think it could go it could go that direction I was I did have a question later on so I may as well I, I, in that sort of realm so I may as well ask it now was that obviously quite a lot of these programs there's a, there's a victim of violence and um unfortunately frequently it's it's a female victim of violence given you know everything that's going on in this country at the moment how do you produce television which at its heart at some point has to be entertaining you know in a genre where it is victims of violence they are frequently women at the heart of the story while being you know responsible not exploitative duty of care to you know survivors and friends and family and stuff like that I mean talk me through the sort of development process on that yeah so you so you have to so like we said before I think there has to be a really compelling reason to do it particularly when it's a recent case particularly where it's a high profile case we did a faking it on um, Grace Mullane last year and you know we have you make sure the producer will make sure that we're speaking to the family um, through the police or directly and that they know and that they're aware that's happening I think that's really Really important we've got something in development at the moment that part of the family just don't want to happen and I don't think we'll go ahead with it because if they're not comfortable with it I'm not sure that we can justify doing it so that's one piece definitely working you know with producers and victims families I think looking at how you present it as well you know again with faking it we've done things like faking it Jimmy Savile faking it Michael Jackson when we did Grace Mullane we didn't want to we wanted to put Grace at the centre of it and actually not make it about the perpetrator and not give him any bigger platform than he already had. So we didn't call it by his name. We decided to call it the murder of Grace Mullane, a faking it special, so that it was about her. So you remembered her. So those sorts of things can come into play. We'll quite often make sure we work with charities and do a charity board at the end of the programme. So it's it's lots and lots of things that we think about. It is really, you know, you have to think really carefully about these things because it is a really, really sensitive, difficult genre to work in 
and it isn't just entertainment is it you know you're right people come to it for that but you have to think more deeply about it than that does it go right down to the minutiae of you know in the edit you know how quickly it's cut and what music you're using and you know careful not to sensationalize it or am I thinking sort of too deeply about it no I don't think you are I think then you want to work with really good producers who make a lot of crime and who know how to deal with the subject really sensitively who have those relationships that's really key it's really critical that you work really good crime producers so one of the um the areas of this genre that I'm interested in mainly because I've watched a lot of it over the past few months is this uh, stranger than fiction um stuff raw team v make a lot of it don't fuck with cats tinder swindler oh the mcdonald's monopoly game fraud just those you know here's a story often 90 minutes but sometimes two or three parts here's a story that you're just not going to believe but it's actually true so I wondered whether that was a trend and a direction that the genre is going in or are they just a bit fluky are they too rare and difficult to find I'm, you know I'm sure or you'd all love a tinder swindler but you know that's the sort of one-off story and there's there's so few of them it's difficult to to find and describe as a trend yeah I mean you know don't fuck with cats tinder swindler are both made with by raw I mean they're phenomenal producers of these sorts of stories aren't they they just get the access they you know tell the stories they craft the stories so brilliantly like perhaps they're a trend in themselves but you know there's a lot of access a lot of producers going after you know the same access because there's a limited number of stories and it's a genre that's working across you know all the PSBs all the different SVOD platforms so it is you know it's it's competitive so it is about it is about the access finding that story spotting that story and working out that it's going to be right for you as well you know Annie it just it felt like the right sometimes it's the right time to tell the story that felt like the right time 10 years on and after that sort of time people are more willing to talk about it sometimes you do want to talk more recently but I guess that also feeds into what we were saying earlier you know there's a bit of a con crime thing going on at the moment you know don't fuck with cats was those first kind of internet solving solving crimes themselves since swindler so that that's an evolution within itself so it's finding different ways to tell crime stories different ways that people are solving Solving crime stories. I think it's just finding those different voices within it. I don't know. Is that a trend or not a trend? What do you? Yeah. Think? Are you are you in the market for for like stranger than fiction stuff, or do you see it more as like you know that's a Netflix thing and they do that they do that very well, and we're over here doing something different? Or you know, if somebody brought something like that to you, would you you'd be over the moon with it, or or is it a Netflix thing? Yeah, so? no, I, I I think I think yeah, I think we would. I think we want really really good access, incredible crime stories that you can tell in a really forensic granular. Um, journalistic way but like I said I do think there needs to be a real purpose what we would always want is a reason to be able to do it but yes I think we would take those 100% the audience for these pieces just finally is often well it is producers and distributors if they're coming to see you to to talk true crime what would be your your do's and don'ts and tips for people that are coming to pitch you is there something that you hear a lot for instance that you're a bit sick of or uh, what advice would you give people coming to see you so I think it's really easy particularly with the returning crime just to come up with something that isn't new, that is just allowing you to retell the story and not bring anything new to it. And I think that's not that's a bit of a problem. I do think you have to bring something new to it in order to justify telling that story for all the reasons we spoke about, for the victims, for the victim's family, um, and for the viewer, actually, in a saturated market. Unless you're doing it and bringing something new, there's no point. 
lots of, I think lots of layers, lots of surprises. You know, the more twists and turns you've got in the story, the more unbelievable human behavior that you've got underneath it, which there quite often is um, in these stories. Really good access and really good archive and a really different approach to being able to filmically tell that story. Given the importance of archive, because you, I mean, you've got to put it on screen for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or, or whatever the runtime is. So there has to be something to show other, other than talking heads. Does that have you leaning more towards uh, more recent stories that you've got like news footage and things like that, as opposed to something from much further back where obviously the footage is going to be in black and white and uh, scarcer? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the world's changed so much, hasn't it? Even if you go back 20 years, suddenly, exactly, you're living in an older, less diverse world. So I think I think modern stories do just give you the touch points that you need for stories, particularly for younger viewers. That's where the sort of the Johnny and Amber. So we're going to do more X versus Y's. We're doing a couple more later this year. But they're very contemporary, big names, but important pieces about really important issues underpinning them. Um, but incredible archive because they play out on, you know, text message or they play out in social media. And that is the sort of archive that that younger demo is going to respond to. Charlotte Reed speaking with Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 